It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. If people think the country is on the wrong track and are upset, it's usually really bad news for the party in power. The Democrats have a very difficult challenge on their hands when it comes to the midterm. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective. From D.C.'s top names. I think there's a lot of pent-up demand for electing a woman, and I think 2022 could be the year of the woman. I see the demand that we have today as the baseline for the future. It means our economy is roaring back. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for joining us on the fastest hour in politics as we focus today on one of the biggest unfinished items of the year in Washington, filling the empty seats on the Federal Reserve. Joining us to talk about it is Joe Lavornia, chief economist of the Americas at Natixis and former chief economist on the White House National Economic Council. Joe, it's good to have you back. What's taken so long? That's a very good question. I guess you'd have to ask the president, but there are three open seats and there are also two uh, two president seats that are open. And while the administration doesn't have direct influence on those seats, I'm, I'm sure there are people in the administration that would like those those filled as well. What I can tell you, Joe, is if you look at the composition of the FOMC in 2021 versus 2022, uh, you wind up losing some very uh, dovish, uh, or I should say market-friendly yeah. uh, presidents, and the committee will become more hawkish. So there certainly is an incentive for the administration to put forward the, the candidates they want, and my guess is they would do so in a way to try to blunt the, uh, the hawkishness, or I should say less dovishness, that's likely to be on the committee next year. Well, that's going to be an interesting line to walk, right? Because here you have an administration that wants to make good with progressive Democrats looking for uh, diversity, looking for a new approach on the Fed, but you've also got inflation knocking on the door. Yes, you've got inflation knocking on the door. I mean, I remember that, you know, when I studied monetary policy back in school, we learned that the Fed funds rate was a very blunt tool. Uh, Since then, the Fed's toolkit has expanded largely through asset purchases, but there are certainly limits to what monetary policy can do. And uh, one of the problems the administration is going to face in 22, if they want to get all three uh, people uh, filled, mm-hmm. is getting Senate confirmation. And uh, if they wind up going with somebody who is uh, who is more extreme, uh, we saw, for example, what happened with the, uh, the comptroller of the currency, uh, that's going to be very difficult for them to fill all three of those spots. So they may have to pick more of a centrist or maybe a center left-leaning uh, economist type to maybe mm-hmm. get it through to Congress, because it's going to be hard to get all three through right now. I guess that's the good problem in having three seats to fill here, although it, it does also seem that progressives, and namely Senator Elizabeth Warren, who's kind of driven this as a political issue on Capitol Hill, are really zeroing in on this supervisory role. That's the one that will be judged, Joe, right? Yeah, yeah the supervisory role is is important. Uh, having said that, uh, Lael Brainerd, who 
who basically had that role has now been elevated to the vice chair and she does work quite closely and from everything I've seen and read uh, works very well with um, with Jay Powell. So that, that supervisory role is important, but you've got some continuity there in terms of the key people uh, still running the Fed are there. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's the push. Maybe the push is going to be trying to get somebody on the supervisory side so it's the P's one faction of the party. Yes, right. But you still need good people on the monetary side. Ultimately, I think that's what matters most. Well, let's throw a couple of names around, Joe Lavornia. We see the short lists. They, they're they're pretty consistent based on where you're looking or depending on where you're looking. William Spriggs appears to be on most all of them. Chief economist at the AFL-CIO, economics professor, Howard University. Gives you good feelings or concerns about confirmation when you hear that name? Look, the administration hasn't called me to ask who who I would support. No, we, we did that. People, certainly. You, you did that, exactly. But there are some people uh, who, who I think could be very, very good in the governor role who who would potentially be a lot less uh, less provocative or much easier, um, much less of a fight. Uh, I'm thinking someone, for example, is hypothetical. I didn't yeah. talk to him about this. Yeah. But I don't know him. But, but Jason Furman, for example. Uh-huh. Uh, Jason, to me, seems very reasonable. I don't agree with, with everything he says by any means, but, but Jason ran the, the Council of Economic Advisors under President Obama, and he mm-hmm. seems like a very thoughtful, reasonable person. So someone like him would be, would be my choice. Uh, I know Jared Bernstein. I haven't talked to him in a while. I know he's also now uh, the Council of Economic Advisors under, under President Biden. I, I kind of like, if you're going to go left, I like sort of a little bit center-left. And um, that that would kind of be my thought. I'm not sure whether the gentleman you mentioned would, would go through so easily. It'd probably be a fight. And if that's the yes. case, you might only get one person through, not not two others. Well, it's interesting because I was going to ask you what you thought of those with actual Fed experience. Uh, when we talk about yeah, people I mean, like Sarah Bloom Raskin, for instance, or even Raphael Bostic's name uh, keeps coming up as well. That's right. Uh, look, the, I, to me, you know, we, we, we talk about diversity and things of that sort, and, and you want breath. Uh, breath of experience. And too often in the past, we, we had sort of the Fed people of just one similar ilk, uh, PhDs from, you know, saltwater schools who had a lot of academic right. experience, but but not the other stuff. So I pick somebody maybe who's never been in academia. It's in the private sector. Let's let's try that. There are a lot of people I'm sure that would do it. Comes from banking or not? Sure. I mean, you've got three spots, but I would think banking, I mean, given the fact that Fed is the, the primary banking regulator, effectively, with all due respect to the FDIC and the yeah, comptroller sure. of the currency, the Fed is the main, the, you know, the main entity, the main governing body, the main regulatory body, I should say. Wouldn't you want somebody from the private sector to give you a different set of views that would, you know, not to say the private sector is always right, but they would at least have some sympathy or understanding with how the sector works. And I would think you, you, you'd kind of want that breath. I mean, people seem to like Jay Powell. He's almost certainly going to go through with flying colors. Uh, Jay has a private sector background. That's he right. doesn't fit that similar mold. Maybe we should have another person like him. What will these confirmations look like? We're not talking about the Fed share. Obviously, these are lower level positions, but very important ones within the central bank, but not household names. These aren't household jobs like a secretary of labor, for instance, where people are going to be sitting in their living room watching these confirmation hearings. But of course, Joe, the markets will be watching. The markets will be watching, and I think back my days when I was at the Fed, and I learned sort of how how government sometimes works, and it's sort of like sometimes the the smaller the stakes, the bigger the fight. And uh, while these people very well ultimately may not be household uh, names, there is a midterm coming next year. We all know. We know there's a lot of division and divisiveness, and I can't help but think, unfortunately, we're going to fight over this. 
even though we'd like to fill these spots, I think it's going to be hard to get all three. And my concern would be the administration moves in a more progressive, uh, further left vein, and that doesn't allow them to get the people they want confirmed, and by default will not allow them to fill all the seats. So yeah. I, I, basically, the midterms, I think, are going to throw a kibosh on things. Interesting. Uh, to extrapolate all of this and look ahead to, to actual policy and, and what the what the Fed might do in the year ahead, we've been hearing uh, most recently about three interest rate hikes. I just wonder more broadly, when you add three new members like this, assuming that they get this done, and there's no guarantee that they will with the number of months that we've waited, what does it mean uh, for the Fed's overall posture in fighting inflation? I'm of the view, Joe, that the Fed will not be be raising rates next year. And if I'm wrong, maybe they could squeeze one in. Huh. Um, you know, the nice thing when I look at my Bloomberg, I can tell you to go look at the the yield curve, the two's ten spread, or yep. even look at the the two's five spread. And the great thing is, you could even do it in forward space. Where is the market two years from now? And when you look at those spreads now or two years from now, they essentially are arguing the Fed's on the cusp of a policy error, making a policy mistake by pushing rates upwards three times, because when the Fed goes three times, the perceptions will go more. And given how sensitive asset prices have been in the Fed's decision-making process, uh, and the fact that I see the economy slowing very sharply next year, and that will take inflation a bit lower, it's going to be very hard for the Fed to go three times. And, and that's with the Fed that was already set to be more hawkish relative to where we were this year. So uh, obviously, if the president gets some Fed picks through, that would make my my forecasts look even better because it huh. would lower the, the probabilities of any rate hikes. Boy, do you not share the widespread concern that many have about inflation, or do you do you think the market has it wrong? Well, I, I would say the market has it right. So, for example, if we go back to where the market was in early April, uh, the market uh, interest rates were much higher. The 10-year note was about 175, and investors thought it was going to go to 2% and above. And the Fed wasn't expected to raise rates until 2023. Fast forward eight months later, inflation's uh, running more than double, up near 7%. Market has pulled forward the timing of the rate cuts, but actually long-term yields are lower. And more importantly, where the market thinks short rates will be over the next few years is actually lower. So basically the market's saying Fed's going to go sooner, but they're ultimately going to go less because their raising rates is going to slow the economy so much they'll have to stop. And uh, I think to me, that's the shift. So inflation is a problem, no question. Yeah. But the market tends to look past inflation as focusing more, Joe, on the growth side. Mm -hmm. And to me, when I look at the slope of the yield curve, when I see commodity prices peaking, I see the dollar strong. Uh, that tells me that there's a very good chance the economy will weaken sharply. That means lower rates and those inflation fears eventually will dissipate. But Joe, if you're Joe Biden and not Joe Lavornia, you can't say on a microphone what you just said, right? Yes, inflation's a problem, but don't worry when they Start playing around with interest rates. going to slow things down so much you wish you had an inflation problem. And that's where we'll pick up next with Joe Lavornia, chief economist of the Americas at Natixis, former White House official. In fact, he was chief economist on the White House National Economic Council. Stay with us. We'll check markets. We'll check traffic as well on the way. This is Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. 
Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. We'll continue our conversation with Joe Lavornia about filling empty seats on the Fed and his expectations for the economy in the new year. But first, we climb into the Sound On time machine to bring you back to late November when President Biden announced his plans to renominate Jay Powell as Fed chair, Lael Brainerd as vice chair. We spoke that day with White House economic advisor Brian Deese about what went into the decisions and where he sees inflation heading. Well, the president's focus in nominating both Jay Powell and Leo Brainerd was to focus on people with experience, expertise and independent judgment. And we feel very good that we found two individuals with unmatched experience, uh, sound judgment, crisis tested coming through this crisis. And both of them together spent a lot of time working on this new monetary policy framework a commitment to a strong, robust recovery that brings everybody along. So we feel uh, very good uh, about these two individuals. Uh, We feel good about the reaction to them, and we hope that we will get them confirmed quickly here and in place. The timing of this announcement, we've been talking about this, of course, for weeks. I wonder what took so long to make what apparently was such a non-controversial announcement with Powell and Brainerd. Well, the president's deliberate about these issues. The stakes on these decisions are high. Uh, And by making the announcement now, what we're signaling is uh, two very strong individuals who we think will now have plenty of time to be considered by the Senate and confirmed before the end of these uh, terms. So I think it's a a appropriate moment to get this uh, rolling. And I think also will be good for reinforcing something the president reinforced today, which is the independence and the credibility of the Fed. Uh, It's incredibly important that we reinforce the independence of this vital institution. I think the president, you see the president prioritizing that in his announcements and the timing helps to reinforce that these folks can and will be confirmed in time before their terms expire. Brian, how has your own view on inflation evolved these past weeks with some of the data that we have seen? It's become a daily conversation, a full-time job almost uh, for this West Wing. Do you see prices continuing to rise until the Fed can knock them lower with interest rate hikes? The prices are high now, uh, no question, and that is affecting American consumers. Uh, At the same time, we are looking at the actions we can take uh, as an administration to try to address those. I think a lot of the drivers behind that is that we still have COVID globally. It's affecting supply chains. It's affecting the supply-demand balances. We certainly expect that to ease uh, across time. So we're going to do what we can to try to address these issues head on, uh, while uh, the Fed, we expect, will use its tools uh, and make those judgments independently. It was White House Economic Advisor Brian Deese talking to us from the White House in late November. And we turn back now to Joe Lavornia, chief economist of the Americas at Natixis. Joe, you see inflation easing next year? Well, I think the problem, Joe, is you've had these supply disruptions, which have certainly aggravated the inflation. And you had unnecessary, unneeded fiscal policy uh, that we had back in March, a nearly $2 trillion plan that uh, was done through reconciliation that lifted the household savings rate, that created excess demand, pulled a lot of activity forward, which further exacerbated the inflation problem. So I think to figure out the mechanics or the, the history of why we have this inflation, there, we 
there's some policy mistakes that have been made along the way. Yeah. What I would advise the administration on certainly is to is to not raise taxes, do not raise marginal rates, do not raise capital gains rates, and do things to increase the supply capacity of the economy because ultimately if you have strong demand, you want to meet that with, with strong supply. I just don't know if if anything I've seen to suggest the administration is going to go that route, mm-hmm. I'm a bit troubled when they're looking at like anti-competitive measures as yeah. a way to like lower inflation. That's not why inflation size, not because of anti-competition. It's because of policy uh, tools or policy decisions that were made that have exacerbated the inflation. COVID is the wild card here, right? If we start seeing shutdowns, that's a game changer for Jay Powell, right? It is. I mean, fortunately, we're we're not going to go to at least a hard lockdown, but there might be some softer lockdowns. The one thing that I'm very surprised, I don't understand why people haven't observed this. It's something that I observed when I was in the White House over a year ago, and that is a seasonality to the virus, where you tend to get these cases spiking in the warm months in the south and southeast. And then, of course, the same happens in the in the winter and the colder months because people are inside, they're packed closely together. And uh, that's the one thing that's been consistent through and through. I'm hopeful that the Omicron, for everything that I've seen, suggests that uh, it, it, its virulence is no way near as high. It's no way near as lethal. Um, I, I believe that's the case. And if so, then I don't think we're going to go down that even more soft lock. I don't want to say soft, for lack of a better term, soft lockdown. I don't think we'll go that route. Yeah. Here's the issue, though. My big concern is that if, if places in Asia, uh, China's pursuing a zero COVID policy, sure. uh, if they shut down, that just means that we're going to get our goods longer from where we ordered them from you know, from Asia. Because you'll notice most of the port issues have been on the West Coast. Even more That's supply chain problems. Asian trade. Yep. That's right. So I think the U.S. is in reasonably good shape now. I think we've, 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 you know, we've made some good progress on the virus and the therapeutics are coming. But I'm more, we have to now worry about what other countries' reactions do. And if that's the case, that will keep inflation higher. But does the Fed raise rates in that environment? Uh, probably not. But it's a good question. We'd have to ask Jay Powell. <laughs> Anywhere from zero to three sounds like where we're settling in this conversation. Yeah, and I would air closer, <laughs> Joe, to zero. And and I would just one other thing for your listeners. Yeah. When we look at the history of, of, of tightening a monetary policy, they've always tended to drag things out. And in 15, the Fed thought it would raise rates four times, and the Fed only raised rates once. It was in December. And they waited another year to raise rates the second time. Now, the inevitable, the pushback is, but Joe, inflation was significantly higher today than it was then. And that's exactly right. But, but, but the yield curve today is much flatter. And when the Fed does raise rates, the yield curve may be the flattest it has ever been when the Fed's initially raised rates. That tells you the market is saying, look, they're not going to get the chance to do that many because, again, we're worried about the economy slowing. And it could be for a variety of reasons. It could be the administration's policies. It could be COVID. It could be whatnot. But but I like thinking we're closer to zero than three. Joe Lavornia is chief economist of the Americas at Natixis, former Chief Economist as well at the White House National Economic Council in the Trump administration. And in advance of this weekend, I will wish you a very happy new year. Come back and see us in 22. We'll compare notes on Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. So to think we're going into the new year, with empty seats on the Federal Reserve. At one point, we heard that 
Names would be announced beginning of December, and even that was considered to be pushing it. But the White House appears to be, as we were just discussing uh, with uh, Joe Lavornia, in no real hurry. Let's assemble the panel, see what Rick and Jeannie think about it as we spend time with Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis. I'll start with you here, Jeannie. I know this isn't something people are walking around talking about in their households here. This is not likely table conversation, at least outside of the Beltway or financial circles uh, at, at the New Year's Eve bash. But this is something that needs to get done. Why would why would President Biden wait so long after announcing his nomination for the Fed chair, have Lael Brainerd as vice chair? We thought that would be followed on by his vision you know, a broader vision for the Federal Reserve of the future. You know, this is one of the things that I think has been very perplexing, Um, in in particular because, of course, the issue of inflation is such a politically charged issue right now. If the president was to make these appointments, it would show he has wrapped his hands around it and is moving forward. So, you know, I think it is perplexing that they have taken quite this long. My one guess is that they are trying to ensure that whoever they appoint has the support that they need. And they may feel like they have some work to do in terms of keeping the progressives on board in that regard. If inflation is the word here, Rick, wouldn't it look good to be leaning into uh, your, your vision of the Fed? Yeah, and I think that's what he accomplished when the president appointed uh, Chairman Powell for another term, right? He was, you know, a little bit more aggressive, hawkish, you know, on uh, on inflation. Uh, but I think that it really is emanates, the delays emanate from the point that uh, Jeannie was just making, which is he's got such a big constituency on Capitol Hill. I mean, like Elizabeth Warren thinks these are her appointments. Yes, right. And, uh, and, and he's probably trying to consult with all of them and come up with some kind of a uh, um, uh, consensus. The problem is there is no consensus in the appointment process. You got to pick your team and you got to get them through confirmation. And it just doesn't seem to be smart, I think, for the White House to delay these kinds of appointments where they actually need the work done. You've got three seats, though, Rick. Doesn't that make it easier? You know, give someone like Elizabeth Warren a progressive, maybe even in the supervisory role and that 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 clear space to do what you want with the other two. You know, it's it's what you say, Joe. It, it's so important. It is the Supreme Court of business. Right. I mean, if anyone said, "Oh, you got three Supreme Court appointments to make," imagine in your the term, gift. You can actually form the consensus around Fed policy uh, for the next, you know, ten years by these appointments. He'll have made five Fed appointments in the first year. Mm. I mean, it's an extraordinary ability to influence, you know, that kind of monetary policy. And yet he seems reluctant to do so. Well, maybe there's a calculation here, getting back to your point, Jeannie, that if inflation is going to be the overriding issue in the midterm election year, maybe you hold off. You don't do this uh, in the middle of the holidays when nobody's paying attention. Well, that's a great point, because they may be waiting to say, look at what we've done. We are addressing this and we want to do it to your point when people are actually paying attention and not otherwise occupied with the holiday break. You know, that's said, I do think it is critically important that they move on this. I, I, I'm not sure, to Rick's point, that people are paying, you know, generally close attention in the, you know, sort of public domain people interested in Wall Street are. And the president, I don't know that this makes sense to be waiting this long on this. And I'm not sure it's a winning strategy as he thinks about the midterm. I think you're better off getting these up, getting them pushed through and showing that you are moving forward. Rick Davis, what do you think of the shortlist? Are any of the names uh, realistic that you've been hearing so far? 
You know, I think that most of them are uh, appointable. Uh, I do believe that um, uh, Biden will use a very strong commitment, as he has said publicly, to diversity. He wants to diversify uh, the Federal Reserve, uh, more women, more minorities. Uh, and I think that's a very positive thing for him to do. But uh, in the in the short list, certainly uh, approaches that that goal. So uh, again, I really don't think it's a question of whether or not they have qualified candidates who fit all the requirements that the Biden administration has. Sure, it just doesn't seem like it's a priority for them. And yet, I I, I think he's very vulnerable. I mean, if I were running a campaign against Joe Biden in the midterms, which of course you know you don't have to, but of course people will, I would say that the chairman he picked you know, said that inflation was transient and he didn't bother putting other people on board to try and stop inflation. And and I think it's a it's a commercial that writes itself. Jeannie, we're hearing names like William Spriggs, AFL-CIO, like Lisa Cook. They tend to emerge in all of these conversations as well. Sarah Bloom Raskin. Are any of these a problem uh, to the extent that Joe Lavornia says as a Republican, you're, you're just not going to get all of them approved? You know, I think they are all well qualified. You look at Cook, you look at Spriggs, you know, these are all well-known, qualified people. They do help meet some of the uh, issues that I think are rightly to be considered in terms of diversity, which has been lacking at the Fed. But I also think in a 50-50 Senate, you have to get consensus, and that's probably what, or at least you have to get enough support to get them through, and that's probably what the president and his team are trying to ensure. But you're never going to make everybody happy when you're talking about people as varied as Elizabeth Warren on the one hand and then some of the Republicans on the other who are going to have a large voice on this. So I think he's going to have to move forward recognizing they may not, you know, any one of these individuals qualified may not get the widespread support they would like, but he's got a number of appointments to fill all of these positions in a way that at least you make people happy with at least one or two of these. Rick, you want to see an outsider, maybe somebody from the banking sector or even not from the private sector? The list is full of that kind of diversity. But I, I think the priorities have got to be uh, putting people of color on this board. It's all white men uh, is, is the typical uh, mantra. Uh, now it's all white men and women. Uh, and I think that people like Lisa Cook, you know, from Michigan, State University and, and, and Phil Jefferson. Uh, uh, these are candidates who I think deserve a look. And I think it's very hard for Republicans to vote against them because they're people of color and that they're qualified. And so uh, I think that I think that would be one of the big impacts. It's a historical impact to the Federal Reserve Board. Insights from our Sound On Signature panel, Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis Many thanks to you both, as always. And coming up, we look back on the political stories that resonated most with registered voters this year. Based on rolling research from Morning Consult, we'll talk with the firm's Cameron Easley about Morning Consult's annual special report, the headlines most seen, read, and heard in 2021. We'll have details ahead on Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. We, of course, talk politics every day here on Sound On, and it's always fascinating for us to see which stories resonate the most with voters. New research from Morning Consult gives us a good sense of that, an annual report based on the firm's polling of registered voters over the course of a year. The headlines most seen, read, and heard in 2021. And we're joined by Cameron Easley, senior editor at Morning Consult. Cameron, welcome back to Bloomberg Radio. 
Thanks for having me, Joe. Yeah, we're winding down the year here, and the executive summary here on your analysis reads like a scary story, Cameron, over the course of a year that brought Americans the fallout from an insurrection, the start of Joe Biden's presidency, a stubborn pandemic, and a fair amount of economic anxiety. Morning Consult asked, as you point out, roughly 100,000 registered voters how much they'd seen, read, or heard about hundreds of current events. What story resonated the most? The top story for, for 2021 was actually uh, President Joe Biden's signing of the uh, so-called American Rescue Plan. That was the $1.9 trillion coronavirus relief package back in March. Yeah. That was obviously uh, such a huge point of discussion, uh, both uh, you know on, on Capitol Hill, uh, between uh, you know late 2020 and into early 2021, and and also you know just kind of a dominant topic on the campaign trail as well. It was something that that now President Joe Biden really ran on as a candidate challenging Donald Trump, and you know of course the perhaps the the hallmark of this legislation um, is the the direct stimulus payment to Americans, which we really saw break through and, and resonate with the public in a way that, that a lot of, of legislation and policy uh, in, the, in the power corridors of Washington uh, does not seem to, to, to find folks on Main Street. The American Rescue Plan, the number one story that resonates with Americans, even before we spent six months debating the Build Back Better plan, reconciliation, infrastructure, and everything else that seemed to steal headlines. What do you what do you make of that, Cameron? Is it the fact that it involved direct checks to Americans? I think that's absolutely uh, what we're seeing here, Joe. Uh, we did a, a, a ton of polling around the American Rescue Plan uh, back in the in the beginning of, of the year as it was coming to to fruition and and moving uh, from chamber to chamber on Capitol Hill. And, you know, what we found was that far and away of the, of the very many provisions tucked into that bill, uh, voters were much more likely to, to report, you know, recognizing the, the checks aspect of it than, than, to, than to realize many of the other things like it, it did, such as, you know, create the expanded child tax credit. Uh, or, uh, you know, a variety of, of other kind of provisions as they relate to kind of, you know, the, the social safety net. So, you know, very, very clear that uh, money talks and, and more importantly, it, it resonates uh, with the American public. I wonder if there's some fatigue as well. And, and my gosh, it's hard to start telling unless you're a real wonk like we are. Some of these pieces of legislation apart, they all have weird names, Build Back Better, American Rescue Plan. There's infrastructure, hard infrastructure, soft infrastructure. Do people tune out during the summer? Uh, they do. And, you know, really, the other, the other important part of this is that, you know, some of those other pieces of legislation, uh, you know, kind of as you mentioned, uh, have been, you know, stalled on progress. They've taken a really, really long time to come together. And, you know, I think really just with, with respect to, to, the, to the Democratic Party on Capitol Hill, I think they've really had some, some messaging problems, uh, you know, talking about the benefits of the bill, really spending time messaging the bill, especially as it relates to Build Back Better. They, they didn't even really, you know, know exactly what, what was in it. Yeah. Uh, you know, Joe Manchin opposes it in its current form, and it probably looks like it, it's going to change again if they are going to get into any kind of a product. 
But, you know, obviously, whenever a president takes office with uh, his party in control of both chambers and Capitol Hill, at the very beginning of, of the presidency, we see something of a, of a honeymoon period in terms of, of, of popular appeal of the president. But we also see a big focus on what that new kind of governing majority, that new government of Washington is going to do. And the way that Democrats were able to move quickly and strike fast and, and get the American Rescue Plan over the line in, in relatively short order certainly helped create kind of a, a big media moment uh, that, you know, we really haven't seen replicated uh, in the months since then. Once things start to get drawn out here, people stop paying attention in many cases. Cameron, how about the Delta variant and COVID? This is on your list among the top stories. And of course, that shouldn't be a surprise with the way it's impacted people on a personal level. But I wonder if people's opinions are changing about the way we're managing COVID. Well, you know, I do think we are starting to see some indications uh, that that is the case. But, you know, first to get back to your point about the Delta variant, yes, it was the uh, fifth most uh, seen, read, or heard about story uh, of the year, with nearly three in five voters reporting, hearing a lot about that back when we polled on it kind of late June, early July, when it was really uh, starting to take off. Uh, Democrats uh, significantly more likely than Republicans, about, about 15 points more likely to report hearing a lot about that. Uh, which I think, you know, feeds a little bit bit more into the, the point that you're, that you're trying to make there. This is something that we have seen kind of across the board is that while Democrats are more likely than Republicans to hear a lot about any particular news event, uh, for some news in particular, we see that effect is, is magnified. And COVID happens to be one of them. You know, since early on in the pandemic, uh, since, you know, President Trump at the time kind of uh, instructed the country to, to open up back in April 2020, we've really seen um, an increasingly uh, politicized perception uh, of the virus, where really your, your stance on the virus has just become really uh, innately linked to, to your own political identity. And I think that's kind of something that we're, that we're seeing here with, with these numbers. Uh, you know, I do think with, with the Omicron variant, we are uh, starting to see perhaps maybe some, some, some COVID state of emergency fatigue. Uh, another uh, really interesting and useful tool that, that Morning Consult employs and tracks on a weekly basis is tracking consumers' comfort toward a variety of activities uh, in the public sphere. And one thing that we have seen in recent weeks is that as cases have, have risen with Omicron, and we're starting to see a lot of media attention on the variant, uh, the, the share of, of, of consumer comfort hasn't really declined or, or reacted in any way to that news coverage. So it is certainly possible that we are, you know, starting to see some kind of a, of a different posture generally from the public toward the virus. It's definitely too early to tell. Uh, and that's just one per, uh, that's just one possibility. Yeah, boy, and I suspect that could change a few more times in 2022, depending on the, the trajectory of the pandemic. I thought gas prices would rank uh, fairly high here, Cameron. Uh, how about in, in terms of energy? You found that no news story broke through like the Texas power crisis. What do you make of that? Well, you know, I think we're seeing a, a couple of things here. One thing, 
is that we are starting to see the the media in general pay a little closer attention uh, to to weather to traditionally weather stories that may uh, may or may not have have implications or or be kind of I don't know showing us some kind of impact of of the longer term uh, changes that were that were happening to see in the climate with with as, as it relates to the earth. But I think what you're really seeing here uh, with the Texas power blackouts being the, the second most read, most seen read heard about story of the year uh, is you're, you're talking about a story that was kind of made for, for a cable news cycle, right? Uh, it's something that uh, is, is happening for a, a, an extended period of time uh, and it's also, you know, it's a it's a legitimate crisis for that entire period of time. And so, which as you as as a result, you you see a lot of of steady media attention um, paid to the topic. And I really think that's kind of what what makes the difference in a lot of cases mm-hmm. uh, with with these news events and, and standing out. You know, on that note, you know. Another of the two of the other top five stories here on our on our top stories list are also really kind of you know made for for cable TV stories. Uh, the the condominium building collapse in Surfside, Surfside Florida that yeah. that killed dozens and yeah. and kind of spawned you know weeks and weeks of 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 questions and coverage about what went wrong, how could something like this happen? Uh, that was also near the top, and then of course. You know the trial of of Derek Chauvin, the the former Minneapolis police officer who was found guilty of murder and manslaughter for the for the death of, of George Floyd in 2020. You know that's just another one of those drip 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 stories uh, that happens in a relatively short period of time where there's just a ton of of media focus on what's happening, and so I think that's that's a huge part of of what makes those three stories: the Texas blackouts, the the Chauvin verdict. And, and the Surfside condo collapse really resonate deeply is that they, they have these legs in the news cycle and they really have time and space to kind of embed themselves in, in America's psyche. Really interesting info from Cameron Easley. We thank you, Cameron, senior editor at Morning Consult with us on Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun from May 14th to 16th a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.